0: Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a Chair disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. I'm not crying. You're crying. I'm not crying. wanted to start... With, with something kind of sweet because we're going to open the Bible here in a minute and we're not going to see that. But it's a special day, right? It's Mother's Day and that is a, a super, super exciting reason to be here at church. And, and the reality is, as many of you have tried to grab some of you that I know this day is, it's a hard day. For some of you, this is the greatest day. You have a phenomenal relationship with your mom and you've already had breakfast with her or whatever, giving her card, present, gift, that's great. For some of you, it's, it's a harder day. Don't have the kind of relationship with your mom that you wish you did. And so know that we're there with you on both those. It's been 33 years since since my mom passed away, but it's been 23 years that I've been able to celebrate my wife being a mom to our kids. And and so there's lots of joy and there's lots of sorrow on a day like this. If you're here with us, if you're watching online, happy Mother's Day. We hope that you have a chance to, to feel honored and loved. Maybe more so than the, the mom. She had a couple kids. She had teenage kids, which is dicey in and of itself. And a boy and a girl. And, and on Mother's Day, they came to her with this special, hey, stay in bed. Stay in bed. We want you to stay in bed. And so she's really thinking, well, this is going to be great. This is going to be special. I'm going to get, you know, breakfast in bed. And sure enough, she kind of wakes up. She hears commotion going on down in the kitchen. And, and pretty soon, she smells bacon cooking. And she's getting really pumped. And she's really excited. And she waits and waits and. Wait, <laughs> nothing. You know? So finally she wanders downstairs and she parks herself in the doorway there in the kitchen and there are her teenage son, teenage daughter eating breakfast at the table. Made Bacon and eggs, fresh fruit, orange juice. They're having a blast. You know? And they turn and they see their mom in the doorway. They're like, oh, mom, happy Mother's Day. To help you out, we made our own breakfast. <laughs> so close. <laughs> One more step they could have got there. From all of us at OCC, we pray, moms, have a great day. If I could ask you to grab your Bible, join me. We're still in the Gospel of Luke. We're gonna look at a passage today that does not have any warm, fuzzy Mother's Day feel to it at all, okay? There was no good Mother's Day, I confident in that. And two and a half years ago, when I charted out the book of Luke, I had little idea that this passage was going to fall on Mother's Day. But God's still good. We're going to deal with this. Just remember, we love you, Mom. But, but this is our text for today, and it's a little tough, okay? Luke 22, verses 1 to 6. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death. For they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the 12. He was one of Jesus' 12 guys. Verse 4, and Judas went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad and agreed to give Judas money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus to them, apart from the crowd. Happy Mother's Day. My goodness! What do we see in this passage? Now remember, anytime we're studying the Bible, we want to make our observations first. That's what helps us get to a correct interpretation, helps us get to application. And we see right away in this context, Passover feast is approaching. I'm going to let Andrew talk about that next week because the passage really leads us there. But here we see Judas Iscariot, who is one of Jesus' guys, right? One of Jesus' 12 disciples betraying Jesus. And I think the question that always comes up when we're dealing with Judas is, was that guy a believer? Was that guy a genuine Christ follower? What would possess a guy like that to actually betray Jesus? And I think there's a a huge reveal in this passage. Verse 3 says that Satan entered into Judas. A couple weeks ago, I said, you can't use that excuse, the devil made me do it. This one actually fits. (laughs) When we correlate Scripture, this is what we see happen. But there's a big difference to me between demon oppression and demon possession. Because it seems to me that true Christ followers, those people who have a genuine relationship with God, comes by God's grace, comes through professing faith in Jesus, true Christ followers can't be possessed by a demon. They can't be possessed by Satan. Why not? They have the Holy Spirit inside of them. They have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, so they can't have someone else dwelling in there. Now, I would certainly make the case genuine Christ followers can be demon-oppressed. Satan can come along and poke at genuine Christ followers. This is the story of Job. God will allow that in certain scenarios. So when Luke writes that Satan entered into Judas, he possessed him, I think that's a pretty big giveaway. Judas was not a genuine believer. But that's where we gotta dig a little deeper because, gosh, on the surface... He looked like one, right? This guy was chosen by Jesus to be part of the 12. Judas did ministry with Jesus for years. So what gives? Well, let me make this suggestion, and this should be an analogy that we can probably comprehend. Could it be that Judas was religious, but he didn't have an actual saving relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the contention I would make. I don't believe Judas ever placed his faith, placed his trust in Jesus. Because there's a huge difference between being religious and having a saving relationship. But this is language I've heard people use all the time. They'll say, well, I'm a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. And when folks talk about religion in that way, they're talking about some set of beliefs or some set of rituals that they claim, if they do, that will put them in a right relationship with God without actually having to have the relationship (laughs) And spiritual people who aren't holy spiritual people are people who just assume that practicing that religion will somehow make them spiritual. And all the world's major religions, except for biblical Christianity, invariably that's the idea that they promote. You can work hard enough, you can be good enough to be saved. That notion is terribly flawed. If that were possible at all, then God's perfect holiness would have to be lowered to such a level that we could reach it through our own human effort. And we'd have to tamp down our own inherent sinfulness so much so that we could make that possible. And and I just don't believe that's possible. Because if we could do anything well enough to earn our own salvation, then we didn't need Jesus to go to the cross for our sin. We'd be saying, we're so good. Nah, I don't need a perfect substitute to pay the wages for my sin. I got that covered on my own. I think that's ridiculous and impossible. And yet that is the notion that religion tries to sell. And I think this is why Satan loves religion. Makes the cross unnecessary and it just fuels the pride of sinful man. So the most common misconception about religion is, well, if you're a Christ follower, that's just like all the other religions, right? That's like Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or anything. All those. And and of course, quite sadly, there's a lot of folks who claim to be Christ followers like Judas. They may practice Christianity like a religion as if it's just some rituals that I do. It's just some rules that I follow. Gosh, if I do that, I'm all good. No. If you don't hear anything else I say today, make sure you get this one. Religion is not the same as relationship. Having a relationship with Jesus Christ is nothing about religion. Now, yes, in Christendom, we do have rituals, right? We're gonna participate in one next week. That passage we're gonna study leads us to observing the Lord's Supper. We're gonna do that together. I love that. We got a big ritual already scheduled this summer. August 14th is our river baptism. We love that one where folks get to publicly identify with Christ. That's the day before I come back from my sabbatical. I'm planning on going to that because I love that service. It's wonderful. So we have rituals in our relationship, right? And there are rules to follow. I'll give you, there's some pretty big ones. Love one another. Serve one another. Don't murder one another. These are big. But the rituals and rules are not the essence of Christianity. The rituals and rules are actually the result of salvation. We do those things. We observe those ordinances because they remind us of what God has done for us to make the way for us to be saved, to be in a relationship with him. If we want true spirituality, that's gonna come from the Holy Spirit inside of us. Like Paul writes about in Galatians where we'll have that fruit of the Spirit. It's not nine separate things, it's one fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things will be in us because the Holy Spirit is in us. So what's the purpose of religion? Well, I think it can be helpful because it points to the fact there is a higher power, right? You're thinking there's something outside of me. And then people are held accountable to that higher power with that higher power. Because the reality is we don't need favor. What do we need? Salvation. And so what do we need? A savior. But if people are thinking about religious things, that could help spiritual people recognize, well, what do you know? There's a Savior available. And it's not in anything I'm going to do. It's not in this physical world. It's not by doing physical things. It's going to come from the Holy Spirit indwelling inside me. So truly, Jesus is the fulfillment of religion. He's the fulfillment of spirituality because he's the one we're accountable to. He's the one we have a relationship with. And so I do think practicing a religion can be helpful in teaching us what not to do. We know how not to do it if we're open, if we're willing to really evaluate that religion. Many people are not. I understand that. And it's a hard thing to broach. I'll give you that. I've had conversations with people who follow different religions, and it's just awkward, right? You try to be as gentle as you can, but how how gently can you go to somebody and go, you're doing that wrong, right? I noticed you kneel five times a day facing a certain direction. I think you're doing that wrong. I noticed you confess all your sin and then they give you some homework and then you go back and repeat that same sin over and over again. I think you're doing that wrong, right? How do you lovingly say those things to someone who's practicing a a liturgical act or a ritualistic religion when they do that? And so the thing that I do is I just ask them. And again, I'm trying to be so gentle. Hey, why do you do that? And it's it's. Funny, it's not all the time, but the answer I get most of the time is, well, that's what I've always done. That's not a great answer. (laughs) Well, that's what my parents did. That that, that was the way I was taught. I just don't think that that's good enough. I think they're blind to the real reasons that they're practicing religion in the first place. Now, that's not always the case. I I guarantee you that. And if somebody who is practicing a religion knows Jesus, then that's good on them, and and we can have that conversation. But, But the problem with most religion is it doesn't place the one true living God in the rightful place. And if we don't have that part right, then it's gonna be all works and absolutely no reward. And now people talk about religion. Organized religion has this negative stereotype and people just lump Christianity in with it as if it's a religion, not a relationship with all the other false religions. And so here's the bottom line, and I know this does sound harsh, but I believe religion is one of the greatest forces of evil in the world today. I think Satan has used religion, done more damage to Christianity through religion than almost any other tactic he uses. And I think that's actually what we see in Luke chapter 22. This is the introduction of the most heinous act recorded in history. It's brought about by a religious guy who betrayed Jesus into the hands of a bunch of other religious guys who then murdered him. This is the introduction to the events that lead to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Judas Iscariot goes to these religious leaders and he struck a bargain to betray Jesus into their hands. And if you notice from the text, they were wanting to do it already. They'd been looking for a way to make this happen. They wanted this, but they had a problem. They wanted to kill Jesus, but he was popular. Guy had a following. Everywhere he went there, were these huge crowds. And so they didn't want to go into the temple and arrest him in front of the temple in front of a bunch of people. They didn't want to go up on the mountaintop. They didn't want to go when he was standing by the water and using the natural acoustics and there's thousands of people there and arrest him because they knew it might start a riot. And we know this because we can correlate scripture. This is actually what we see in Mark chapter 14. Mark wrote, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, so we know we're talking about this same week, same passage of time. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. They know what they're wanting to do. They're already plotting this evil act. And all of a sudden, Judas comes to them and makes the whole thing that much easier. I'll just hand them over to you in a private setting. You can arrest Jesus without stirring up the crowds. And then later, when the crowds find out, this is great for them now, they'll just blame Judas. Now they've got a scapegoat. Now, it would have been impossible for these wicked men to know that all the things they're planning, the things they think are their plan, were actually God's plan. God ordained this was gonna happen during this time, during the Passover, because he's sovereign. He willed it. We talked about this the last couple weeks. They think their plan is taking shape. It's really God's plan taking shape. But this is what we see for sure. If you grabbed an outline and coming in, this is the second point. It's possible to profess belief in a religion and still be used by the enemy. That's what we see in these chief priests and scribes. They believed in God. They knew a lot about God, right? And Judas wasn't just part of the crowds following Jesus. He was one of the 12 chosen disciples. These look like pretty solid folks. And they're not on team Jesus. They're pretty clearly on team Satan. Do you know the same thing still happens today? Same thing has been happening throughout history. Even if you're not a fan of history, you know some of this stuff. I hate to, you know, if this is painful memories for you in school. You remember studying the Crusades in school? Remember that? The Crusades started out as a righteous endeavor. That was originally about liberating Holy Land from Muslims. What happened? The Romans liked it so much. Hey, we can go in and kill people? They co-opted it, and they just used it to eliminate people that they didn't like. But they kept calling it the Crusades. The Crusades. Well, what's the problem with that? The word crusade comes from the way of the cross. It started out as a good thing. It'd be very hard for me to imagine Jesus wanted them to keep using that name when all they were doing was trying to violently kill people they didn't agree with. We see this. At some point in time, there was nothing Christian about the crusades at all. Satan just using people to accomplish what he wants. Still see it today. One of the most violent white supremacist groups that's active in the United States is the KKK. People are familiar with the KKA. They have the enduring symbol of the hoods and the white robes. There's another symbol they use that's almost, they'll ask them, why do you light up the crosses? And they say, because Jesus is the light of the world. So you're saying Jesus wants you to systematically eliminate everybody who's not like you? Well, that doesn't seem very Christ-like to me. But this is what they're doing. They're practicing this counterfeit Christianity, just like the Crusades. Well, where'd they learn it? This is what the religious leaders back in Jesus's day were doing. They said they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet they're actively plotting to murder his son. Being affiliated with a religious organization, and <laughs> God, that's what we see here in Luke 22. The chief priest describes, the they professed to know the one true God. They told people they believed in the scriptures. Judas was actively a follower of Christ, and yet they killed the Savior. Anybody can make a showy profession of faith. But if we don't truly accept God's grace, if we don't begin that eternal relationship with him, then that profession is not enough because it's a false profession. And I know that is troubling. I know that sounds confusing. But it's because we don't see hearts the way God does. If we hear someone make a profession of faith, what do we have to assume? Well, okay, that person's a Christ follower. They may not be. And that concept is very tricky, I'll give you that. And, and it's a little scary. It's not meant to be. I guarantee you that. Because if we want to know, if we have a genuine relationship with God by grace through faith, we can know. We see this in God's word. The Apostle John shares Christ's heart. He says this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. This is a very important verse. These things I have written to who? To you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why did he write them? so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not for me to know if you have a genuine relationship with the Lord. It's for you to know. It's not for you to know for me. It's for me to know for me. Now, we do get the fruit test for followers, right? I like that. Does our life bear fruit? But sadly, that's not foolproof. But we can know if we have placed our genuine faith in Christ. We don't need somebody else to tell us. And still, I've had so many people who come to me, and they're worried. I mean, they schedule time to come meet with me. They say, Pastor James, I'm worried if I'm a Christian or not. They're worried about their own relationship. Even John has just told them they can't know by searching Scripture. But the folks I've counseled with who struggle with this question, whether or not they're really saved, almost all of them are tripped up by one particular passage. It's in Matthew chapter 7. I believe it's taken out of context if they're trying to use it to justify their doubt of their own salvation, but, but let's look at it together if you're not familiar with this. This is Matthew 7. Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a little scary at start. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, if we just read those verses and we want to be scared by that, I think that sounds pretty scary. But I'm 100% convinced this is Jesus talking about people like Judas. This is Jesus talking about the religious leaders back in the day. He's not talking to folks who truly wonder if they're saved. Because if you come to me truly wondering if you're saved, I'd contend the fact that you're wondering about it means you're being convicted of whether you're saved. And that conviction, I believe, comes from the Holy Spirit inside of us. Because that's one of the roles the Holy Spirit in Scripture is to convict us of sin. So I think if you're convicted about that, that means the Holy Spirit is there. And that circular argument actually works in this example. But this text in Matthew, I think Jesus is talking about people who know about Jesus. They're religious. They talk a good game of Jesus. But they don't have a relationship with him. As evidenced by the fact that they don't go out under the power of the Holy Spirit to join God at work, to do the Father's will. What do they do instead? They name drop. These are the people who don't lead by example, but they say, well, Jesus would want you to do this. Jesus would want you to do that. I don't do that myself personally, but Jesus would want you to do this. That's a bad way to lead, right? Right? They're not leading by example. They're not obeying God because they don't know God. Now, There's a phenomenal illustration of this in the book of Acts. And so if you have the book of Acts, you can flip over there. If not, we'll have it on the Sky Bible. This is in Acts chapter 19. There's seven sons of Eskiva. These guys were Jewish exorcists. And they were out trying to perform miracles like they saw the apostle Paul performing. Now, what's the problem? God was doing the miracles through Paul, and it was God's power that was accomplishing it. But Paul was out healing people. He was out casting demons. And these people thought, well, gosh, that looks like fun. I'm going to try and do that too. What was the problem? They didn't know Jesus. <laughs> they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. So what they wanted to do was perform the miracles in Jesus' name. Like the folks in Matthew 7. This is what we actually see. Acts 19, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, see if this preaches, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. (laughs) Isn't that what's happening in Matthew 7? Lord, Lord, didn't we perform miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? These guys don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're just name droppers. Bible's funny, and this is one of the funniest passages in the whole thing. Look at verse 15 of Acts 19. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, honestly, this part isn't funny. This part's scary. I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul. Who are you? Demonic spirit is saying, I I, I get Jesus. He's the son of God. I know that Paul knows Jesus. I don't think you guys know Jesus. This is scary. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, these religious guys, and subdued all of them, there were seven of them, remember, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I'm from the South originally, and the South would preach, they got whooped, right? That's what happened. Missouri, that's that's the title of that sermon, right? There's a pretty clear takeaway here. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus, don't run around pretending you have a relationship with Jesus. And yet intentionally or unintentionally, that's what a lot of religious people do. That's what Judas did. That's what many of these religious leaders of Jesus' day did. I think that's what the folks in Matthew 7 did. But church, hear me. Religious affiliation is not enough to save us. We need a relationship with God. Religious knowledge is not enough to save us. We can have tons of head knowledge. We can quote a whole bunch of Bible verses out of context. It's not enough to save us. We have to have a relationship with God. Religious position is not enough to save us. These guys were the leaders in the church. Judas was one of the 12. We could serve on a board in our religion. It ain't saving us. My dad, God love him, who never professed faith in Christ, served on the board of the Episcopal church that he went to twice a year. I don't think it saved him. Rituals aren't enough. We can't observe enough rituals to be saved. Having a lofty mountaintop experience with God is not enough. We need a relationship with God. It comes through professing faith in his son. That's what we have to do to be saved. And the apostle John says, we can know if we faked that or not. We can know if we made a genuine profession of faith. We can know if we genuinely want to die to ourselves and live for him. Please don't expect me to make that determination for you. You can know for you. I can know for me. We can know where we stand in that relationship. But hear me on this. To experience eternity with God, we have to have that relationship. I don't believe Judas had it. I don't believe the religious leaders who were plotting to kill Jesus had it. I don't think the folks mentioned in Matthew 7 had it. I darn sure know these seven sons, the Sceva, they didn't have it. And we know from studying God's word, we know to be saved for all of eternity, we have to have it. We have to profess faith. We have to know in our own hearts that it's a genuine profession. We have to, at that point in time, accept, receive the gift of God's grace. That's what's gonna make us saved. But hear me, it's not gonna make us perfect. Judas didn't run into trouble because he sinned, right? He didn't run into trouble because he messed up. That's the difference between Judas and the other 11 disciples, right? The other 11 disciples messed up a bunch too. Peter was the ringleader for the disciples. He denied knowing Jesus three times. He ran out on Jesus on the cross. He messed up time and time again. He faced consequences for when his actions warranted them, but he did the will of God his Father. I believe Judas wasn't a saved guy who lost his salvation because of this one act of treachery. No, I believe he was a man who never made a genuine profession of faith. I think the Bible teaches that as we correlate it. Because Jesus himself said this about Judas. This is in Matthew 26, verse 24. The son of man is to go. If we understand in the context there, he's talking about when he's gonna die. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man... By whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Would have been good for that man if he'd not been born. I don't think it's a real stretch to think he's talking about Judas here, right? Now that passage in Matthew is actually a neat picture of the things we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. How God's sovereignty and man's choices work together. Because God, from the beginning of time as we know, determined that Judas was going to betray Jesus. Jesus. And he determined that Jesus would die on the cross for my sin, for mankind's sin. And he determined that Jesus would rise again, ascend into heaven. That's what this text means when it says he would go as it is written of him. We see that play out over and over again. Death, burial, resurrection. We know there was nothing. There was no one who was going to stop God's plan to make salvation available for everyone everywhere. And yet, just because all that was ordained beforehand by God, that doesn't give Judas a pass. It doesn't spare him for all the wrath that he would suffer because of his role in this drama because Judas made his own choices. It's just that his choices aligned perfectly with God's sovereign plan. I'm not smart enough to know how that works on this side of heaven. But we know this, Judas wasn't a robot, right? He got to make his own choices. And the reality is he traveled alongside with Jesus. He was with these guys serving with Jesus for years. He had a bunch of time to get this right. He had a bunch of time to profess faith. He just didn't. I know it didn't play out this way, but I'm convinced. Even after Judas did this despicable deed, he could have repented. He could have confessed his sin. He could have begged for forgiveness. And you know what would have happened? God would have forgiven him. And that's not some warm and fuzzy thing I'm trying to say to bring it back to a nice, sweet Mother's Day message. I'm saying that because that's what we see in Scripture. This is 1 John 1.9. If you don't know this verse, you need to. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness except for you, Judas. I can't add that last part. Everybody can be saved but you, Judas. No, that's not what it says. I don't know if we like this or not. This is why folks who are on death row right now, this is why people who've committed heinous crimes on this planet can come face to face with the God of the universe and be forgiven of their sin. All they have to do is ask to be forgiven. That's part of the mystery that God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, scripture says. Because even if a guy like Judas had made the choice to repent and confess his sin, he would be saved. He'd be forgiven, and God would make his perfect will happen some other way that he already knew about ahead of time. This is where the smoke starts to roll out of my ears. I don't know how he'd do that. I just 100% believe from studying his love letter that he would. that He can. Having a genuine relationship with God, that's not something we can earn. That's not something we can will into existence. Because being a Christ follower comes from his mighty power. It comes from adherence to the gospel message, and it changes us from the inside out. So once we make that genuine profession, we become new creations in Christ. Isn't that what God's word says? And there should be evidence. We should bear fruit. True Christ followers should die to themselves, die to our selfish desires in order to live for Christ, in order to do the will of God. That's what we should see. It doesn't always look that way. But I know this, before we have a relationship with God, we spend a lot of time talking about how proud we are of what good people we are. And then we begin an eternal relationship with God and we're immediately humbled by our sinfulness. We come face to face with our sin nature. What's the change? We're transformed. He changes our hearts from within. And folks who've not made that kind of honest profession of faith, they lack true conversion. But if we're observing the actions of someone who hasn't secured an eternal salvation, then I think we are going to see some things when they fail the fruit test. We're going to see some things that give away their actual heart condition. I think that's what we see in Luke 22. I think that's the fourth point on your outline if you're following along. We can see that without a saving relationship, people will choose to pursue their own selfish desires. That's for sure what we see from these Jewish religious leaders and Judas. These guys were selfish. They weren't willing to die to themselves. That manifests in a bunch of ways. One of the ways on the outline it says is in money and material things. We already studied that back in Luke chapter 16. It said the scribes, the Pharisees, they were lovers of money. We know this about Judas too. We can correlate John's gospel account. Do you remember that incredible scene where Mary came and she poured the expensive perfume on Judas's feet, or, or on Jesus' feet? Judas was there, John tells us. But Judas Iscariot, one of Christ's disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? The Bible doesn't always come along and immediately interpret itself, but I love it when it does, verse six. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, He said it because he was a thief. Judas was the guy who carried the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. I don't think Judas was a Christ follower. What would it take for us to sell out Jesus? 30 pieces of silver is all it took for Judas. I'm not saying this is universal. I don't know if this happens just across the board, but I think this is one of the tests you can use to see if someone is religious or if they have a relationship with God. Ask them to give up their stuff. Ask them to give away their material possessions in order to advance the cause of Jesus and just see what they do. Will they betray Jesus? Will they not do the will of their father because they love money so much? Additionally, folks who choose religion over relationship seem to be in it for the prestige. They seem to want the recognition. I think that's evident in the text too. We studied this a few weeks ago. The Jewish religious leaders loved the respectful greetings. They loved the places of honor in the synagogues. Now, this one we don't get direct confirmation of, so I can't prove this one. But I do wonder did Judas like that praise and attention that came from being one of the 12? Came because he hung out in Jesus' gang? Did that affiliation make him feel important? Now, I ask that primarily because of the timing of Judas' betrayal. Jesus was making it abundantly clear he was going to die, right? He'd been talking about this for a long time, and now he's talking about it a whole lot. He's ramping it up. And he also talked about the fact that he was coming back, but nobody seemed to pay attention to that detail. But he kept saying he was going to die. Is that why Judas made this move? Because he thought, I'm going to lose my status as being one of the 12. How about I go make a deal with these religious leaders, and now they'll augment me, they'll esteem me, and I'll get some recognition this way. I don't know, but that could be. Looking for recognition when Jesus was gone. Pursuing selfish things, money, recognition. I think also you see this power and influence. Man, that was currency for the Jewish religious leaders. They loved having influence over others. We know that that conversation at least crept into the disciples. They walked around a few times asking which one of us is the greatest. Maybe Judas was on that kind of power trip as well. You know, the sad thing is that's certainly not a thing of the past. Also, that happens today still. I tell you this story. This wasn't in this church. This is a church God had me on staff at back in Missouri. But I, I was on staff at a church there and, and we had a young family come and visit. And a sweet looking family, super nice, super friendly, dad, mom, couple kids, and they came once and they came back the second week and the third week they came in, I was excited to see him, said hello. And the dad grabbed me and he kinda of pulled me aside and he's like, We like this church like the teaching, like the music. He says, tell me, is this the church in town where all the movers and the shakers go? (laughs) Excuse me, what? What what are you asking? He's like, well, we're just kind of new into town, and I really see myself kind of getting invested here in town and kind of rising up. I'm thinking maybe I'd serve on the city council. Maybe I'd be mayor someday. Is this the kind of church where I can network and make those kind of connections? I wish this was not a true story. (laughs) It's 100% true. I said, no, I don't think this is that kind of church. This is the kind of church where we come and die to ourselves (laughs) so we can live for Jesus. This is the kind of church where we want to bring glory to God and build up his body like scripture says. That's the kind of church we want to be. They did not come back. I happen to know for a fact which church they went to in town. It was the big church where the (laughs) movers and shakers went. But, But I had friends on staff at that church. I might have warned them this guy was coming. I'm just saying. This is ridiculous, but it still happens. If we're about religion instead of relationship, our selfishness is gonna be pretty evident. And I think it was with Judas and these religious leaders. Okay, let's start to wrap this up. Last point on your outline says, religion without relationship may create some short-term happiness, but it will 100% create eternal separation from God. Verse 5 here in Luke 22 is a scary verse. It sends a chill down my spine every time I read it. Do you remember that one out of context? Judas approached the religious leaders. He pitched this notion of betraying Jesus. They were glad and agreed to give him money. What were they glad about? The idea of killing Jesus. And Judas was glad about it too. He was going out thinking, man, what am I going to buy with those 30 silver pieces? They were glad they had short-term happiness. Can you imagine how this played out in your head? The chief priest goes home that night and he's unusually happy and pops through the door and his wife goes, you seem so so happy, what's going on? Well, I figured it out today. Now we know how to kill Jesus. And the best part is one of his buddies came in and betrayed him. We paid him off with some silver. And so now we can blame it on him. It's a great day. They're selling that as a win-win We know the rest of the story. That happiness is short lived. Their eternal separation from God was and is forever. Church, are we being discerning? Are we on the lookout for people who embrace religion over relationship? Are we cautious about people who claim to be Christian? They might be on Team Satan. You ever heard the name Norman Vincent Peale? Peel died almost 30 years ago. He was a man of considerable influence. He claimed to be a Christian. He and his wife, Ruth, actually founded a little magazine that I've read several times, the, the Christian Magazine Guideposts. Seen that one? That's Norman Vincent Peel. He went to the Boston University School of Theology a very short time after. He was a Methodist minister. He became a Reformed minister. He worked in the same church for 52 years, Marble Collegiate Church in New York. Many of those years as a senior pastor. If you know his name, it's probably not for any of those things. It's because of a book he wrote called The Power of Positive Thinking. You read that? It's kind of an unholy alliance that twists religion and relationship into trying to think your way to success. I read it before I became a Christ follower. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan awarded Norman Vincent Peale the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's the highest civilian honor that is available in the United States. This is a guy who was fabulously wealthy, Achieved recognition, prestige. He had influence over many, many people. Do we think he was religious? Or did he have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus? Same year that Norman Vincent Peale received the Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan, he also appeared on a popular talk show. There were talk shows before Oprah. He appeared on the Phil Donahue Show. you got to be old to know this one. On the Phil Donahue Show, they have transcript, they have video of this. He said this, it's not necessary to be born again. You have your way to God, I have mine. I found eternal peace in a Shinto shrine. I've been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. The host, Phil Donahue, was shocked. Blew his mind. And he said to Norman Vincent Peale, you're a Christian minister. Aren't you supposed to tell me that the only way is Jesus? He's the way and the truth and the life? And Norman Vincent Peale replied, Christ is one of the ways, but God is everywhere. Church, we've got to watch out for the scribes and the Pharisees and the Judases and the Norman Vincent Peales of the world. We've got to watch out for people who profess religion, not a saving relationship with God, because there is an eternal difference. Amen? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Happy Mother's Day. Let me pray for us. Daddy, give us wisdom. Give us discernment that comes from you so we can spot this difference. There's an eternal difference. Religion cannot save us. A relationship with you by grace, by your grace through professing faith in your son, our savior Jesus, through knowing because of what is written in your word, because of the relationship that we secure, knowing that we have that relationship. God, help us to be so discerning. Help us to to lean in on you, trust in you. Know that we can't work our way to you, God. We have to die to ourselves to live for you. God, help us to do that in a way where you truly do get the honor and glory that you're so worthy of. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.